President Obama sold us on the idea that we can get the Iran that we want by being sweet to it, and that there's a way to stabilize the Middle East without the U.S. military. And the lesson of the Obama foreign policy should be that's just not true. We're not going to get a sweeter Iran until we show Iran that there is going to be a direct and painful consequence to them for everything that they're doing. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined in studio by Michael Duran and Dan DeLuce. Michael is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He served in the George W. Bush White House as a senior director in the National Security Council, where he was responsible for helping to devise and coordinate U.S. strategies on a variety of Middle East issues, including Arab-Israeli relations and efforts to contain Iran and Syria. Dan is FP's chief national security correspondent. And Will Toby joins us by phone. Will is a senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy's Belfer Center and director of the U.S.-Russia Initiative to Prevent Nuclear Terrorism. He was deputy administrator for defense nuclear nonproliferation at the National Nuclear Security Administration from 2006 to 2009. There, he managed the U.S. government's largest program to prevent nuclear proliferation and terrorism by detecting, securing, and disposing of dangerous nuclear material. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. If you've got episode ideas or comments, email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, gentlemen, we're all here after a relaxing and quiet Labor Day weekend, punctuated with North Korean nuclear threats and the latest nuclear test. Uh, Ballistic missiles seem to be ready to launch once again. But we're all here to talk about that other nuclear threat that seems to have fallen by the wayside. But I think that sage observers of the foreign policy landscape realize that this is about to tick up again. And of course, I'm talking about Iran. The Trump administration has, uh, if not gone on the offensive, at least been relatively aggressive in pushing for additional sanctions. There is talk that – and I don't think it's any secret that within the Trump administration, there's not a lot of love lost over Barack Obama's uh, JCPOA or the Iran nuclear deal and that the administration is looking at ways at applying new pressure – Uh, on Iran um, in order to ensure compliance or to uh, provoke some sort of response. Um, Whether or not they're backing away from the nuclear deal is an open question, I think. Mike, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about what you think the Trump administration is looking to do here? My best guess, and it's really a guess at at this point uh, with regard to Iran, Iran nukes, is that uh, the president is going to continue to certify compliance um, just because I think and, – And explain what that is. Oh, uh, he, so he's mandated by the Corker-Cardin uh, legislation every 90 days to uh, certify that Iran is in compliance with the, uh, with the deal. Um, and there, there are arguments out there, uh, which are serious arguments, I think, that, that Iran is not in total compliance. Uh, but the, the problem is that I, I don't think that our major allies would regard the uh, infractions of Iran as rising to the level of uh, uh, announcing them as totally noncompliant and then, thereby, and then therefore reimposing sanctions on them, which would end the deal. And I suspect, and Will, I think, uh, is probably better poised to talk about this than me because he just wrote a piece about it for you. But uh, they, they're going to look at this and they're going to see how much it's going to annoy the allies and they're going to they're they're continue to I, – I, I predict that he will 
the president will continue to express annoyance at Iran and at the deal, but continue to certify. I th- and that's a good point, one I should have made. It's not just the Trump administration of the United States deal with Iran. This is a, a multi-state, multi-party deal that includes five other nations. Um, so, Will, what is the what is the the sensibility of the other of these other countries that are parties to the deal about Iran's compliance or lack thereof? Well, I think that our allies are pretty clearly on the record. Uh, President Macron has uh, talked about the that there is no alternative to the JCPOA. Um, Prime Minister May has called it a vital deal, um, and. Uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel has also been quite clear in her support and lack of, and that she sees any lack of viable alternative to the JCPOA. So I think that they are firmly committed to trying to make that work. Russia and China, I think, while they would like to see it work, they're fundamentally interested in pursuing their own commercial and security interests. And whether or not it stays around uh, varies a bit. So, for example, if tensions rise in the Middle East and oil prices go up, Russia is happy. And if the United States is perceived as having trashed the deal and therefore our influence and prestige with others recedes, again, Moscow is happy. So why is the administration looking to apply this additional pressure now in Iran? Dan? Well, the Trump administration has often described Iran as, you know, sort of the biggest threat to uh, stability in the Middle East, but even to U.S. national security. They describe Iran in very, very uh, kind of grave terms and and, uh, did so during the campaign and have since uh, Trump entered office. And and the nuclear agreement is, is kind of a huge headache for them because they've inherited it. Uh, they don't like it, but it, it's 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 not a two-way agreement, as you said, between the U.S. and Iran. It's this it's uh, it's this multi-party agreement, and uh, even if the U.S. were to leave it, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it, the the outcome is what the U.S. would like. So, but they they they're trying to put pressure on Iran outside of the agreement. So they're very con- they talk a lot about U- uh, the Iranian missile technology, ballistic missile technology. They talk a lot about Iran's malign influence in the region. That's always the phrase they use and they're talking about Hezbollah and other proxies, uh, how Iran uh, has uh, propped up the Assad regime and has uh, large numbers of forces uh, there uh, and 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 proxies uh, Yemen, uh, Hamas. And so they're they're looking for ways to impose pressure on Iran's activities outside of the nuclear agreement. But you still have this debate going on about what to do about the JCPOA, about the nuclear agreement. This is at the center. And what's interesting is that Cork-Cardin legislation that was passed was very much aimed at the previous administration, right? This was this was Republicans mainly in Congress, but Cardin's a Democrat, of course, saying, you know, listen, we don't really like this agreement. You didn't give it to us. You didn't make it a treaty that the Senate would have to ratify. So we're so distrustful of the Iranians and the agreement. We're going to we're going to put this 90 day kind of, uh, you know, regular uh, uh, exercise on you where you have to certify that Iran is in compliance, but it also has these other criteria that are separate from the agreement. Uh, you know, is it in the U.S. national security interest? Really kind of subjective uh, uh, criteria in, in, in that, in that uh, law. So it, the Trump administration is actually finding this law a, a bit of an irritant as well. And, and pe- the people in the administration will privately tell you that it's jamming them because 
they're trying to kind of play a long game and have a strategy, and then there's this 90-day uh, deadline coming at them all the time. Let's let's get nerdy for a second. I think I'd like to ha- have have a better understanding of what compliance actually means. Um, and I don't know, Mike, Will, if you guys can help illuminate, you know, is Iran spinning up centrifuges again? Are they reprocessing uranium or plutonium for potential weaponization? What does it look like? And I know that there are inspectors on the ground that have access to these sites, but are there inspectors that are being blocked from sites? What does this level of Iranian compliance, non-compliance actually look like? Will, you want to jump in? You're the expert. Sure. Um, So that's obviously a complex question, but the JCPOA did dramatically decrease the amount of centrifuge enrichment that Iran can undertake for the next eight and a half years, and they seem to be complying with those restrictions. They have never had, so far as we know, any ability to reprocess spent fuel to separate plutonium, and they have effectively dismantled their uh, reactor that was being built at a place called Iraq to produce uh, spent fuel, that would produce plutonium-bearing spent fuel. So, in, in large measure, the deal is in place and is being complied with so far as we know, given their declared activities. There have been some minor violations. They've gone over limits on heavy water production and holdings. Um, at some point, there's some question about the amount of enriched uranium, low enriched uranium, that they have held because the question is whether uh, some of the material that's trapped in pipes counts toward it, et cetera. But these, I think, are seen by most people as peripheral problems, not material breaches of the agreement. And therefore, it would be hard to end the agreement based on that. Now, we don't know. I mean, there there could be undeclared activities. Um, and so I'm not saying that it's certain that Iran is in compliance, but as far as the declared activities, they seem to be complying in large measure with the deal. There are problems. Uh, you mentioned also access to facilities. And it looked like um, the IAEA accepted terms, probably at the behest of the Obama administration, that greatly limited their access to a facility called Parchin, where there was known uh, work Uh, nuclear weapons work done uh, prior to the agreement. And it appears that the IAEA has accepted a circumstance in which they're effectively uh, told that that area is off limits. Now, if there were sound evidence of illicit work there, uh, it would be an open question as to what would happen. But many Iranian commentators have said that they obtained a deal in which the IAEA would not be allowed into Parchin or other military facilities. Mike, maybe you can speak to a little bit about Iranian intentions here. Are, you know, are they trying to push the edges of this deal to test what is possible, to see what the points of the administration are? I mean, Dan sort of laid out uh, at least the Trump or the current government's argument for the nefarious dealings of Iran all across the region, which I think are fair and worth getting into in the complexities. But Try and set us a little bit in the mindset of of the Iranians. They've recently had an election. Uh, They have a person, you know, Hassan Rouhani, who is reputed to be a reformer on the reformist side, uh, who is nonetheless 
allied as as one needs to be with the supreme leader and the hardline elements like the revolutionary guards that um, you know control a lot of the money and a lot of the power. So how are they playing the the sort of complex algebra of the nuclear deal? Will just in his comments kind of showed us that first of all there nobody knows what the nuclear deal is. There's the the Iranian definition of what it is is different from what from the American definition, and even among us, uh, there's the there's the actual text of the JCPOA, but then there's the Security Council resolution that uh, that enacted it, and then there are the secret side deals, right? So, what is the deal, and how do we certify compliance with it? Is a is a what, what's the basic definition of the deal? Is a, is a serious question. From my perspective, the one of the aspects of the deal, I, I would call it sort of the secret annex to the deal, the sixth protocol, you know, is that the is Syria. The Obama administration sold us this deal, uh, telling us, you know, in order to get it through Congress, they said, this has nothing to do with Iranian behavior in the region whatsoever. This is, this is a narrow nonproliferation agreement. That's, that's it. And it should be it should be evaluated on that on that basis alone. Meaning, we don't want the Iranians to actually have a nuclear weapon, and we think they were relatively close to it. So let's focus on that, and then we'll table the other stuff about their involvement in Syria, about support for Hezbollah, about other and we, other things. And we and it was you know it's not just the it's not just the Trump administration that talks about the malign behavior of of Iran in the region. The Obama administration did too, and and John Kerry, when selling the deal, went before the uh, Congress and said, "We're going to push back against the Iranian malign behavior wherever it is." But of course they weren't, uh, and they 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 had promised o- President Obama in letters to the Supreme Leader, promised that he wouldn't touch a hair. And this is, I think, in the letter on the Cheney Chen Chen of Assad. The, that the doesn't sound like something Obama <laughs> well, would write. Okay, I, I maybe, take your point. Maybe that would, maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm misinformed about the precise text of the letter. But but basically, the, he he, promised, he he treated uh, he treated Syria as a Russian and Iranian sphere of influence, and we didn't do anything to counter them there. Uh, and the the question the question in the, so for the Iranians. And you and just think about how the how that this unfold. Uh, just think about the sequencing. The minute the thing was signed in July 2015, even before it was signed, we had Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force of the Revolutionary Guards in Moscow, planning the next steps in Syria with Putin. And 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 the next steps were massive. So the minute the thing is signed, the Russians and the Iranians have a full full fledged uh, military alliance, and they make a big muscle movement in Syria, and we don't do and we don't do anything in response. And it's that intervention, that that major intervention in 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 uh, in late 2015, that that props up that saves the that saves the uh, the, the Assad regime. So the question to me is, and you know, for for uh, for the Iranians, they see they see Syria and Iran, I mean Syria and the nukes as as intimately intertwined. And they see this whole the, the they see the, the the nuclear deal as part of a um, a thaw in relations between the West and Iran, and a recognition of Iran as a major player in in, in as as a member you know as a member in good standing almost or at least a an acceptable member of the security architecture of the of, of the region, and to me that's what's that's that's one of the biggest things that's wrong with the nuclear deal, um, and and. President Obama quite successfully sold it to the American public as having no connection whatsoever to the region when it did. In his own mind, it did. He just didn't let us in on it.
culture. And, of course, in the Iranian mind, it allowed them freer, as you say, freer range to operate in the region. And we see that, I think, in places like Yemen, certainly in Syria. Uh, you were mentioning Qasem Soleimani, uh, you know, who was the the head of the Revolutionary Guards uh, or head commander. The Quds uh, Force. The Quds Force. Thank you. And, you know, he, he had his posters. He was traipsing around Baghdad and mobilizing the Shiite uh, popular uh, militias. Um, so his presence is widely seen throughout the region, and I think that's indicative. So, Dan, you know, I, part of the other, you know, the other part of the equation, obviously, was for uh, Iran uh, sanctions relief, right? That's right. And, and so uh, that's what Iran got out of this, too, uh, something the, the concrete thing they got out of it. Um, we just talked about... Uh, Something um, um, less, maybe less tangible and, and black and white in the agreement, but um, certainly Obama administration was accused repeatedly of giving kind of a, a more of a free hand to Iran and Syria because of this. And basically, on every other issue, there was always this argument: we don't want to rock, we don't want to rock the boat, we don't want to jeopardize this agreement. So yes, Iran's incentive was they had been under very strict, uh, severe economic sanctions from the U.S., from the Europeans. Um, and it, they were kind of unprecedented in some ways. It really, it really hit their economy hard. Their G GDP actually shrank. Uh, it got their attention, and it brought it forced them to the table. And of course, this dates back. The process started in the Bush administration, actually. Um, uh, this the policy kind of, of sanctions. This, this kind of concept, like pushing them uh, through sanctions to somehow relinquish or freeze their nuclear program, and to kind of have some kind of diploma diplomacy aimed at that. So what they got was sanctions relief. And, of course, this was also something that has uh, become uh, a subject of debate and controversy because Iran still feels it hasn't gotten enough sanctions relief. Um, uh, they, they were under uh, uh, the idea, perhaps the delusion, that uh, investors would come rushing in uh, once these sanctions were lifted. Uh, but, of course, European banks uh, and, and foreign companies uh, are cautious. And uh, they don't want to run afoul of the, the U.S. Treasury Department. Uh, and so, yes, maybe uh, on paper sanctions are lifted. But doing dollar transactions uh, was still not really possible. Uh, it made it, it, a lot of European companies, uh, you know, made, flew to Tehran, had a discussion, but actually didn't put money down. So that's beginning to change a little bit. But so you've had a, you had an argument even in the Obama uh, era days, we had Kerry trying to appeal to European companies to go into Iran, uh, <clears throat> and the European companies said, "Well, what we're thinking about it." But um, yes, they got billions of dollars of sanctions relief, and their economy is the pressure is off their economy to some degree. And uh, this is also something critics say, you know, this is a problem. Like, we've signaled to them that everything that they're doing is okay because we're, we're lifting sanctions. And so that's another – so what you've had is uh, the Trump administration has been imposing new sanctions that aren't related to the nuclear program. Mike, you want to tell us a little bit about these new sanctions and what the Trump administration fears that Iran is, is up to? Well, the – if I could just uh, Please. comment on what Dan just said, because uh, it goes back to this earlier question of what is the Iran deal? What's the actual definition of it? Because the Iranians are saying that these additional sanctions are violations of the deal. And I, I have a little bit of a sympathy for them uh, because, because I also saw John Kerry in Europe drumming up business for Iran. Now, I never saw anything in the text of the JCPOA that said that the, that the job of the Secretary of State of the United States is to go drum up business for Iran after the deal is signed, 
right? But when you see that, you it it makes you it makes you wonder what was said in that room between Zarif and Kerry about what this deal was and what what benefits it was going to bring and and how the United States was going to was going to was going to treat it um, and it wouldn't it it wouldn't surprise me at all to find out that the Americans promised that they would do everything possible under the Obama administration to further this. Um, which means that they were playing, you know, there, there, there's a little bit of, a, uh, of, of translation going on here, um, to put it, you know, kindly to the Obama administration, between what was actually said in that room with Zarif, right, and what was said to the, Ameri- what was said to the American public. Because they said, as I mentioned before, that sanctions on ballistic missiles, sanctions on, on, on terrorism, uh, those are totally, those, the, the Obama administration said, those are, those are totally acceptable. But then when, when people in Congress moved to, to do that, they said, oh, please don't, not now. That'll scuttle the deal, right? So the Trump administration is now taking that up on, on terrorism and on ballistic missiles. And we'll see where that'll go. So, I mean, part of the calculus, and, and clearly you're, you're a, a, somewhat of a skeptic of this, but part of the calculus of the Obama administration's efforts here were obviously, A, first and foremost, to prevent Iran from actually gaining a nuclear weapon, which would have presented uh, an almost untenable security situation in the Middle East. Uh, and as we see in places like North Korea, extremely few options um, in how to remove – get a country that now has a nuclear weapon to remove it. But B, I think the Obama administration also hoped that by making this deal, it would encourage a, a more reformist president, maybe make attitudes among young Iranians towards America a little bit better and – presumably to encourage Iran to be a more responsible player in the region, whether they even believed in, you know, in the dark nights in the West Wing. They thought that they could, you know, get Iran to step away from supporting Hezbollah. I highly doubt that. But um, clearly you think that that was a flawed sort of uh, overture. I think I think the way you described it was exactly the thinking that they had. They don't they deny that when you when when you when you talk to him directly and say you thought you were going to moderate Iran, you thought you were going to bring them in and make them responsible stakeholders. And they said we never said that. The president never said that, and and it's true in a narrow sense. The president never used those words. He hinted at it here and there, but he never said it. But there was this there was this uh, this echo chamber that Ben Rhodes, the the uh, deputy national security advisor for strategic communications, built to sell the deal, and. And there, the the non-government partners of Rhodes in that uh, in that uh, echo chamber made this argument all the time, and our European allies, particularly the Germans, made it loudly and clearly. So you know, it was part of the music that went along with the deal. Your last sentence about Hezbollah—they did think they were going to moderate Hezbollah as well. They made a—I believe they made a general. I want to say they, the President Obama. I, I believe that he made a general calculation. And he believed that both for the Russians and for the Iranians, uh, opposition to Sunni terrorism, uh, al-Qaeda and ISIS, 
was extremely powerful. Uh, their, their interest in, in defeating Sunni terrorists was powerful, and that there was a sh an overlapping interest between the United States and, and them on that issue. And if the United States would show them that it wasn't, that it was willing to take their interests into account, re re regard them as responsible stakeholders, we could exploit that overlapping interest and come up with a way to kind of suppress the worst pathologies of the Middle East, meaning Sunni terrorism. Right. So you're saying this is the everybody hates ISIS strategy. And it's, look, we're, the, the Trump administration is still, is still still deploying aspects of that right we're 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 giving we're giving support to the Lebanese armed forces so that they can take up positions on the Syrian border which will then free up Hezbollah to go to go do what it's doing in in Syria and we're convincing ourselves that that's in our interest Mike's exactly right about how what the Obama administration thought about the deal they knew that it alone without some modification of Iranian intentions would not solve the nuclear problem. And the, the best source on that is President Obama himself, who told National Public Radio that what is a more relevant fear would be that in year 13, 14, 15, they have advanced centrifuges that enrich uranium fairly rapidly. And at that point, the breakout times would have shrunk, shrunk down almost to zero. So he knew at that point, and also, not only would breakout times shrink to zero, but there would be no sanctions regime in place to, to otherwise change their behavior. Well, uh, it, it's interesting you mentioned that, Will. Um, Hassan Rouhani uh, gave a speech in Tehran uh, a couple weeks ago where he was sort of poking back at the Trump administration and additional sanctions and Trump's attacks on the JCPOA. And he said that the Iranian government could, I think, I think his quote was that they could stop their stop the curbs on nonproliferation within hours. Within hours was that big takeaway quote that they could spool things up right away. Is it that close that these things are just on uh, on ice uh, and that those centrifuges could be spinning again, or would it take some significant work from Iran at present to develop anything that would might potentially be uh, considered um, a threat to regional security? Well, it, it looks like they actually have taken steps that would allow rapid reconstitution of their program and the way that they disassembled these things. Whether that's a matter of hours as in less than a day or, you know, several days to weeks, I think is a little debatable. But there's no question they could go quickly to reconstitute what they have. And, and, and it's important to remember that sometimes um, you don't know everything behind the curtain. And with North Korea, they ended up moving much more quickly than anyone could have thought. Uh, North Korea used to be a butt of a lot of jokes and ridicule, and here we are. But, a fair point. Um, but uh, there is this kind of bottom line question, though, right? Like it's very easy to come up with all these, all the flaws and, and all the, the maybe the miscalculations that possibly uh, you could argue were part of the, the JCPOA. But here we are. It's a new administration. And I, they are in a real quandary how to handle this exactly. And um, a lot of the cabinet is very uncomfortable with, uh, you know, going for it and actually withdrawing from the agreement. And they've even been hesitant about just under the U.S. law, uh, you know, declaring Iran uh, uh, is not in compliance or, you know, basically under the law saying that, uh, I'm, you know, the president is not ready to certify Iran in this case. And, and, and I just heard Nikki Haley uh, basically lay out the case at a U.S. think tank for decertifying. 
Uh, she said, I'm not prejudging the president's decision, but if you look but at But if we wanted to, here's how he would do it. <laughs> yeah, she, she actually said that. She said he would be on solid ground. And she named all the, all, the, all the reasons. But she did not call for declaring Iran in breach of the agreement and going to the Security Council, sort of triggering the actual accord to unravel formally. It's just, uh, it, it just was in the U.S. sphere. And she said then it would be entirely in the hands of Congress. She even used almost the exact word, wording. And it reminded me of what they're doing with the immigration and DACA, right? It was basically, okay, we're not satisfied with this. Here it is, Congress. You have a, she said, we never had a proper debate about the agreement, which there's some truth of that in the sense that Congress didn't have a, wasn't allowed the opportunity to actually ratify it. They did have a debate and <clears throat> it was constructed in a way where there had to have been a really large majority to, to undo it. But the point is, She's kind of just saying, here it is. She didn't even say Congress should reimpose the nuclear sanctions. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting middle-of-the-road approach from an administration that can't make up its mind, actually. And you have this situation where people like John Bolton or real hawks who are saying openly, I can't get access to the Oval Office anymore. Here's what I think. Here's the memo I prepared. So there's, there's a lot of inter internal dynamics that are interesting. But I, I still don't – and she also makes the point uh, about the access and inspections, which is – there are these military sites that the IEA doesn't have access to. In other words, kind of a Rumsfeld thing. We don't know what we don't know. Like, yes, based on the declared sites that we get to see, they seem to be in compliance. But she kept saying, what about all these other things that we don't know, that we can't see? And by the way, Iran has this horrendous track record of always cheating and lying. So, uh, it, but, but I, I still think there's this question is, what is the best way to stop Iran from getting the bomb? And it's, it's, it, you can make a very good case why the president should decertify. You can make a case why the U.S. should withdraw from the agreement. But, th but then what is never fully explained. So I think that's still a question. Uh, you, you raise a good point here. That there, I, uh, I think at the beginning I said that there, there's two choices, you know, decertify or not. There is this middle choice, which is decertify but don't reimpose the sanctions. And uh, in in whatever way, I mean, you can decertify and then waive and then and then waive sanctions. That has the that has the attraction to the president as because then he can carry out a campaign promise and he can show himself to be emotionally in line with the hardliners, but without actually triggering all of the negative um, uh, negative effects of of leaving the of of leaving the deal. They might they might go for that in the end, but it doesn't. You're very you're 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 100 correct. It doesn't actually answer the question about what next. Well, there is a strategy that I think might scratch the itch that candidate Trump talked about in terms of how bad the deal is. That would actually. Um, be a constructive way out, and that and President Macron has hinted at this as well, um, and that would be to start now to think about what we want the world to look like like in eight years when the central provisions of the JCPOA begin to expire. So, what sanctions regime would we have in place that would prevent them from rapidly rebuilding their enrichment program to take? breakout times to zero, as President Obama warned of. And what agreements would we want with the allies and with the Russians and the Chinese to prevent that from happening? And what incentives would we need to provide to Iran to avoid that? I'd like to add one other thing. I've got an article out uh, this morning, actually, uh, in Mosaic Magazine. It's only 8,000 words, so... I, I, <laughs> Get after it, <laughs> listeners. Yeah. And it's going, uh, going into all of this uh, uh, all this stuff. And I argued there that we should be... Uh, I, I totally... By the way, I totally agree with everything that Will just said. 
but uh, that where the administration should really be putting its efforts now is in Syria and in blocking the Iranians in Syria. Uh, because at the moment we're... That strikes me as just a done deal. Yes, I would say that all the momentum is in a certain direction, but it doesn't need to be. And it's pretty easy to turn it around. I mean, the forces that the Assad regime, which means the Iranians, have racing for Deir ez-Zor right now are tiny. They're minuscule. So the, the amount of effort it would take militarily to prevent that is very small. We could, we could start frustrating them in a lot of ways that would be short of war without turning over. We, 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 we effectively control eastern Syria, right? Or we're the dominant player in eastern Syria. The way things are right now, if they continue, we're going to hand eastern Syria to them. Why should we do that? Why, should we, why, why is that in our, in, in our interest? They then have their highway from Tehran to Beirut. This, this makes no sense to me at all. The Trump administration, though, hasn't, you know, shown itself to uh, have strong desires to have consistent and lasting military presence uh, in the Middle East uh, or anywhere, really. Um, and certainly Trump has come out and said he he doesn't want a nation build. Um, you know, I want to read that piece, and I think it's an interesting point that you're putting forward. But I, I'm I'm skeptical of the notion that this could be done relatively easily and in you know and in the long term. What's what's this? And what are the control control over a substantial portion of Syria that would mitigate Iran's proximity and and the strategic import that the Syrian you know highway to the coast and to Lebanon and that region has for Shiite and Tehran's influence. It it, it doesn't have to be control. It just has to be. It just has. To, we have to make ourselves the dominant arbiter. And I don't you, – you, what you should do is go read the piece. <laughs> but, but because I don't think we've thought through what the consequences are of us not playing that role. It's a very interesting question. It seems like there was a moment where it was really being discussed. It's still being discussed. You, you might know better. But there was definitely a moment where there were those clashes and the, 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 the two sides collided. So the U.S. and its proxies or its uh, allies – partners and the Iranians and their proxies collided on the ground uh, uh, a little bit west of, of, of where you're talking about in tele, at that little base in California. And, and the U.S. did bomb the Iranian proxies and possibly some Iranian visors, we'll never know, uh, when they kind of went into this zone that had been kind of unofficially discussed and declared by the U.S. said, okay, we're here right now. Uh, you know, this is kind of uh, outside of Raqqa. Please, Russians, everyone don't come in here. And, and the Iranians and the, their proxies didn't respect it. And there were some airstrikes the U.S. carried out. And it seemed like, well, OK, the U.S. is going to draw the line. It's going to actually push back and not allow Assad and Iran to have a free reign. And then it didn't happen. And so it, it, it sounds like to me, Mattis and some people are worried about, uh, you know, what are the, what are the risks? What are the, what's the blowback? You know, there are U.S. forces, uh, a few thousand in Iraq. Uh, you know, a small number, but still they're there, more than a thousand in Syria at least. So I, they were worried about, about what, what, where would that go and how far would the U.S. be willing to go? You, you do some airstrikes, are you willing to back it up? But you're right, that's, that's on the table too. The big, the big question is the, uh, is the Kurdish question because once we, let's, if we, if we defeat ISIS and then pull out, which is what Obama clearly wanted to do, then we, but we have, in the meantime, we built up the YPG, Right. What what happens to the YPG when we pull out? And there's there's only there are only there are two basic answers to that. I think one is they go to Russia and Iran uh, because the white the enemy of the YPG is is Turkey. 
right? So they're not going to cut a deal with Turkey. They're going to. They're not. We're not going to. We're not there in force to to protect them. So who's going to protect them? They're going to go to. They're, so they're going to go to Russia and Iran. So we're raising up the YPG in order to hand it to the Russians and the Iranians. And what are the Russians and the Iranians going to do with the YPG? They're going to use it to pull Turkey away from NATO. So what we're really we're, what we're talking about here is not just some forces in the status of forces in Syria. We're talking about the the geostrategic alignment of Turkey. That's that's what's at stake here, as far as I'm concerned. So at risk of being too reductive here, it, it, it strikes me that you all are saying that it's not the nuclear agreement in and of itself that is you know, front and center among the thinking of the top national security advisors and uh, Pentagon planners, but it is this larger pernicious Iranian influence. And we haven't even talked about, you know, uh, in the Persian Gulf and in Yemen um, – so is it possible – one of the questions I have is you know, whether it is actually possible for the Trump administration to deftly use the notion that they might decertify the Iran deal or pull away from the Iran deal as a way now in a sort of backhanded way to comply the kind of you – know, or to impel the kind of behavior that the Obama administration wanted to do by relaxing things, right? So it's the can we actually make them a better actor in the region – if we toughen things up, I have an answer to that, but I, I don't want to. I, I, maybe we should let Will come in because I, he's Will is handicapped by not being here yeah. in our podcast studio. <laughs> I'm, I'm dying. To, I'm dying. When, 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 Will, if you have nothing to say, I'm dying to answer, but I don't want to. Well, it does. It does seem to me that the larger questions are really important, and um, not only in the Middle East but more broadly. If we've done a lot to create suspicion among the allies. And if we walked away from the deal, that's, that fissure in the North Atlantic Alliance would only grow. That is absolutely to Russia's benefit. And I would say that that relationship is far more important even than our interests in the Middle East. And therefore, um, it's important that we take those broader issues into account. Now, whether or not we can use these threats to modify Iranian behavior, Mike's in a much better position to answer. But my own suspicion is that we should be countering those pernicious behaviors by Iran with direct responses rather than by using the nuclear deal. And I, I totally agree with Will. I, look, there's a, here's something that President Obama sold us on, right? He sold us on the idea that we can get the Iran that we want by being sweet to it. Right, and that there's a way to stabilize the Middle East without U.S. without the U.S. military, and the lesson of the Obama foreign policy should be that's just not true. I agree with what you said before, that President Trump is under pressure from his base not to nation build and not to have large numbers of forces in, on, on the ground. But then we have to recognize that we're not going to get all of the other things that President Trump told us he was going to. We were going to get. We were going to get renewed respect for the United States. We were going to push back against the Iranians. We were going to take apart the Iranian nuclear deal, uh, on, on and on and on. None of that is going to happen. And we're not going to. We're not going to get a sweeter Iran until we show Iran that there is going to be a direct and painful consequence to them for everything that they're doing that we don't that, that we don't like so far they have no reason to believe that that that's actually going to come the history of u.s administrations uh talking fire and brimstone and then being sweet at the negotiating table is very very long and that's what they've learned should we worry that iran could break out that you know that they might just decide we're sick of being pushed around and that here we have enough plutonium to make 
a nuclear weapon. Um, you know, Will, you said it, it might not be hours. It could be days. It could be weeks. Um, you know, the North Korean crisis, I think, is front and center in everyone's mind, shows the ability of a nuclear-powered state to dictate its own fate and to jab and poke the U.S. Is that something that, you know, is a, a possibility here? Well, the worst of all worlds, from my perspective, would be an Iran that was free of the restrictions of the JCPOA and also free of sanctions and facing an international community that was in disarray because it disagreed with the U.S. position. We can probably, well, we may be able to handle this <laughs> Iranian nuclear ambitions if the world acts together. We almost certainly cannot if it's in disarray. I was going to say, I, I think the question of the allies of the, the whole international arena is important. Um, the, if, if, if you wanted to withdraw from the JCPOA, uh, wouldn't you want to lay the ground very carefully, make um, a persuasive argument privately, kind of bring your friends along and kind of have a, a kind of really strong, watertight case that you could make on, on all the problems and the risks and the damage that's being done by the agreement and that, and that it's better to uh, go this other direction of, of kind of tough, a tough direction instead of this, as you call it, the sweet, the sweet direction. I, 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 the, 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 allied, the allies breaking away may seem, when you talk to critics, they say, listen, no problem. The dollar's mighty. And when we put, when we reimpose U.S. sanctions on Iran, European companies will, 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 uh, you know, go away, will flee, and and uh, you know the European governments can say whatever they want. But but I think, as, as Will saying, there are many other co consequences to something like that. I think it would be a rupture, almost possibly like the Iraq War rupture, and there are a lot of unintended consequences with that. The other thing is breakout is a real issue. I think I, I don't hear people addressing that enough. Like. What if you somehow feel like you have more leverage over Iran, and then you wake up in less than a year, and they and they do have a nuke? Was that worth it? I, I think it's a really difficult conundrum, actually. Uh, well, I think your your point about Trump and his relationships with allies and with friends is really critical. In order to pull away from this deal, it is a multi-state deal. He's going to need good friends in Paris and good friends in Brussels and good friends in Berlin. And those relationships are frayed, and I think Trump would have to present an extremely compelling argument for Iranian malfeasance and the larger strategic equation of why are we doing this and why now. And that might be a little bit of a hard sell at present. That's, that's also why I like the Syria first sequencing, because I think you can, I think you can develop uh, a reasonably robust international coalition on Syria, on on. Not not toppling the Assad regime and, and and not starting another war in Syria, but but uh, containing the Russians and the Iranians and not not handing it over to them. It is interesting that the the Trump administration talks a lot about Iran and pressuring Iran, but isn't doing that in Syria. And, and it, it, based on the hawkish rhetoric, that would be a very logical step to take. And there's some frustration among among some people out there who are. Uh, right of center who feel like they're missing, who may have missed or are missing an opportunity. I would number myself among those. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, Dan, you've been doing a lot of reporting on that, uh, the Syrian side of the equation. Um, so we'll have to keep our eye on it and have you gentlemen back soon. Uh, thank you all for being here. Will, thank you for calling in. 
Thank you. And uh, thanks, listeners. Bye. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us.